content of this podcast is provided as general informational purposes only. It is not intended for, nor should it be used to replace professional behavior intervention and advice. This is Sissy. And this is Susan, and we are Function Junction. Behavior matters. It sure does. It does. And you know what else matters? Tell me. People who have devoted their career to writing books and helping companies understand the world of neurodiversity. And we are so thrilled to have Mr. Ed Thompson of the company Optimize. And Mr. Thompson, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Susan and Sissy. Pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. Well, we'll just get started. So I see the book in the background, A Hidden Force. And so if you wouldn't mind kind of starting out, letting our listeners know a little bit about you and how you got into this field and then more about your company and, of course, your book. Yeah, absolutely. I think all of that's really the same story. Yeah. My background was not relating to people or diversity, let alone neurodiversity. Mm. Um, at college in England, um, went into private equity consulting roles, uh, found myself on the leadership team of a, of a tech company in London. And the only thing that had happened up to that point that, that, that did ultimately relate back to this topic is that uh, I had a pretty serious car accident a few days into my career and a, and a traumatic brain injury. And that meant that uh, I was off work for, for some time, uh, had some changes to my own thought processing. Now, at the time, I never heard the term neurodiversity, and it would be years later before I would sort of square that that circle. But once back in the workforce, I, I, I found myself working for a tech company whose major priorities were how do we hire talent? How do we, you know, become a great place to work? How do we uh, keep people around? How do we build a 21st century workforce that doesn't all look the same, think the same, and so on? So rather to my surprise, I got involved in very strategic diversity and, and, and workforce improvement initiatives. And having done that, and talking to some autistic family members, and, and then some resonance to my own experience, I started getting interested in what was then the very, very embryonic world of what we can call neurodiversity at work. Neurodiversity, of course, meaning humans have different brains. Neurodiversity has always been part of work. It's always been part of humans and our collaboration. But it took till you know the middle of the 2010s for anybody to sort of give it a name and start paying attention to it. And I thought this was interesting because I, until very recently, you know, been in the boardroom with a CEO who's saying, look, we want talent, we can't find it. The more I learned about the neurodivergent community, the more I realized, gosh, this is just an enormous pool of talent that's either, uh, you know, marginalized when at work and often forced to mask, uh, you know, not feeling like they can be themselves and productive and so on but also that can struggle to navigate the barriers of conventional hiring processes. And having made that realization, I also felt quite strongly that somebody needed to try to educate employers about this because actually familiarity with neurodiversity in society, and of course organizations exist within their society, 
was still pretty low. Yes. And I feel, again, quite strongly that as a man in the workforce, you're never going to know what it's like to be a woman in the workforce. Right. As a as a white person, you're never going to know what it's like to be a person of colour. Uh, as, as a straight person, you're not going to know what it's like to face the question of whether to disclose as, as gay. But I think societally, we have a kind of at least functional understanding of some of those differences. And, and some of those as diversity topics have been so for decades. Whereas neurodiversity as a, as a term was only first coined in the 90s. Yeah. And actually, our research has confirmed what I think we all probably know, which is that societal understanding of neurodiversity until recently has been incredibly low. Oh, yeah. So I felt that it was a, a good mission of the company we, we started to build to change that and to allow organizations, really enable organizations to embrace the neurodiversity of their teams, build more neurodiverse teams and really kind of unlock their human capital uh, in that regard. That's amazing. That's a, just a great, I mean, that's impressive. <laughs> I mean, right there. What, what, I what I didn't mention there, and I and I want to just pick up on is 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 the book. Um, yes. And and so you know, why did I write the book? I was really taken aback by the response we had to the work we've done with organisations, the feedback that people give. It's often quite emotional. Mm -hmm. We hear neurodivergent people saying, you know, it brought me to tears seeing people like me in this training. Mm. You hear people saying, I, I'm just so relieved and glad and proud of my organization for, for being a leader and, 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 and doing this. But we've also seen quite a strong reaction from managers say we know managers are a, a difficult overworked audience you know too much training you know and so on yeah. but actually we've seen managers say I had no idea what this was I didn't know what its relevance was to me and actually this is the best thing I've seen in leadership in 20 years That's amazing give me more and I felt compelled to some extent by that feedback to sure. start sharing this story because I thought there's something quite magical happening here and this is a story that really we should share with with the rest of the world so it was on a a walk with my wife in the uh, early days of the covid first covid lockdown and I said to her gosh you know the 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 world's going a bit crazy maybe I'll have time to write that book I've been talking about I'm so glad three years later here it is there's so many things that did come out of COVID that were positive, and that is most definitely one of them. And you, just in that short time, Ed, you have introduced our audience to a lot of things. One, I did not know that you had a, a traumatic brain injury, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit more. But even that whole night idea of neurodiversity not even being really a word until the 90s. And, you know, Sissy and I are educators. We're behavior analysts, and we work a lot with teachers and principals, you know, and other administrators. And what you said about managers 
is exactly what we hear from general education teachers and principals and other administrators. And so, you know, we say this a lot, it's time, right? It's time. So that's amazing. Now, is the book A Hidden Force, um, is that available? I'm assuming on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all of that. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, it's available on all of those outlets and uh, an audio book coming soon for, okay. for those who prefer uh, reading in that in that fashion, which, of course, many neurodivergent people do. Yes. And then do, can you tell us about Optimize and kind of how that got started? Because it's been around for a while. It's been around longer, obviously, than the book. And I know you have some amazing connections with different organizations. So do you want to talk about that? Yeah, it just so happened as I got interested in this field, it was, again, back in the sort of mid to late 2010s when the first organizations really were experimenting with this topic. Now, what they were doing was what's called a neurodiversity hiring program, essentially. So it was typically tech companies or companies with big tech teams, companies like banks. We don't think of a bank as a tech company, but banks have huge amounts of tech workers during a very tight talent market thinking, you know, how do we how do we hire um, talent how do we fill these roles? And I think there was enough of a of a growing societal uh, appreciation of neurodiversity, of the prevalence of neurodivergence. I think quite a, a deep-held cultural correlation of autism and tech, which of course, you know, to some extent is accurate, to some extent isn't. And also some successful disability hiring programs amongst corporates earlier in the 2000s. And all of that sort of came together. And some of these organizations said, look, you know, let's let's try and specifically hire autistic people for some key roles. And I think what was interesting about that, what got a lot of press coverage, is that disability hiring programs to that point had been very much focused on back office roles. And this was some of the most glamorous organizations in the world saying, you know, we want you as a consultant, Xbox developer and so on. And I think it was something of a watershed for the community to to see that. So with our very embryonic mission of changing how the world thinks about neurodiversity, we, we started building training resources that could be used by folks in those programs. But with a, a sense, I think, right from the beginning that actually neurodiversity at work would really ultimately have to evolve into neuroinclusion. And I, I had friends who were at these organizations that hadn't been hired in a special program. So they just wanted inclusion, period, across the board. And I remember talking with Paulette Pensvalto, who's at Google, uh, runs uh, the autistics at, uh, at Google Group. And she wrote the foreword to the book. I remember talking with her some time ago about how neurodiversity at work would ultimately have to mean we all understand and appreciate this reality about all of us, right? Any managers managing a neurodiverse team, doesn't matter who's disclosed and who hasn't. And, and I'm so glad to say that that's really where it's where it's gone. To some extent, it's gone that way because I think neurodivergent people at organizations have found their voice and you have now much stronger neurodivergent self-advocacy within these organizations. So as some of these big organizations started doing hiring programs, you saw people self-disclose and say, 
what about me? I'm, you know, in the Dublin office and, you know, I'd like to talk about accommodations. But over time, that's really become more organised. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to see, again, the, the time difference here. The first employee resource group that's known of was in 1964. And that was African-American employees at, at Xerox. Whereas the first neurodiversity resource groups, we're talking you know, 2019, 2020. So um, it's, it's it's a very recent thing. But what's, what's great is that the folks leading the charge there have been saying to their organizations, hey, look, you know, we need to do more about this. And we've been there as optimized, you know, building solutions to help organizations who, who want to go on that journey. So, okay, gosh, this is also fascinating to me. Okay, so with Optimize, because I know you you are based in Colorado, and I know you mentioned being in England. Do you ha- do you have offices all over the world? I mean, how does that how does the company function in terms of providing that consultation and training? Well, primarily, we 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 actually do most of the stuff we do online. Even even live training we would do online, which helped us navigate the pandemic. So we have uh, strictly digital resources, uh, e-learning certifications, which are now embedded in the standard at a number of top organizations around the world, on-demand resources as well, so that people can can get the the critical information they need, for example, when somebody discloses or when they're hiring or interviewing a neurodivergent candidate. We also do blended learning, which is typically online, but live over Zoom or Teams and so on, uh, as well as some consulting where needed with the program builders, you know, to make sure that they're on the right track. So that actually allows us, you know, that that model actually allows us to really scale across the world. We have folks reselling and and using our training um, in, you know, over 100 countries which which is which is great um and in a way just shows you know the kind of company you can you can build uh today we don't need offices around yes. the world to, to to have that reach yeah you know i'm sure you you've heard that the center for disease control came out with new numbers in march of this year of a one in 36 uh eight-year-olds are identified as having autism and they think that could be an underrepresentation because the data were analyzed during covid but and in the U.S., you know, there's a number that we quote a lot, and, and maybe you know a better number or a more updated number. But the number that we are familiar with is that 20% of people with a college degree in autism are employed, meaning 80% are not. I'm just curious if you see that same sad number uh, around the world or, you know, what, what it, are you seeing it get better? Well, I think it's very difficult with anything like this. It's very difficult to track. Yeah, really. yeah. Exactly. Uh, uh, my, I've always just, you know, because of my background and being based in, in the US now, in, inevitably have a bit of a kind of U, UK, US sure. joint focus. And, and I think a lot of the the data there is is fairly similar yeah. uh, across across those. Um, but it's it's very difficult to say, I think, because if we're if we're talking about uh, unemployment, for example. Yeah. There was a report a couple of years ago that suggested 90% of neurodivergent people typically don't disclose at work. Oh, right. So so is so are are our unemployment figures including 
those people, I think, by definition, not because right. you know they're they're employed, but 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 not um, disclosing. And I think all the work we've done over the last few years has has revealed, if you like, this hidden force to the topic of my to the to the title of my book um, that are already in organisations, but yeah. haven't felt comfortable enough sharing. So where I'm at with it is, I think there's no doubt that there is under employment and I, I do think that's an issue and there's no doubt that neurodivergent people have found themselves unintentionally excluded by conventional hiring processes right. and our focus groups within the community have told many stories that have illuminated all of those barriers I call them in the in my book the boulders in the road and you know there are many and you can see how those can can exclude people but I, I, I'm also very big on making sure people realise, you know, this isn't only a, a hiring thing. I think there's a there's a, a misconception here that neurodivergent people are sort of hiding under a rock somewhere. And that's the sort of corporate thing is, well, you know, how do we find these people? Yeah, yeah. But actually, you're much better off realising that any candidate pool you engage with is neurodiverse by definition. They don't all have the same brain. And neurodivergent people, whether or not they identify that way or whether or not they want to share it, are within those candidate pools. Uh, and I think what's nice is that is that shift where we're, we're going from organisations thinking, right, we've never hired people like that before. How do we do it? Good motivation, but to some extent, the wrong solution to saying, actually, humans are neurodiverse. Let's make sure we're neuroinclusive in all aspects of talent management so that we can allow everybody, not just the 80 percent, to thrive. Yeah. So, see, we were in a we travel uh, and do a lot of training on autism and uh, other things. And we were kind of talking about that. Like, I don't know anyone in this room. And we had about, I don't know, 40 or 50 folks, you know, like who is neurotypical these days, you know? And just so our listeners are clear, you know, you know, it's hard to define neurodiversity, but we're not just talking about people with autism. We're talking about people with ADD, ADHD, anxiety disorders, depression, you know, do you have like a list of what you include in that population? Well, it's contested is, is the simple answer. We have, a number of great neurodiversity subject matter experts at Optimize handpicked to help us deliver trainings, uh, shape our curriculum and so on. Now, they don't all agree okay. on what constitutes neurodivergence. And to take this back to myself and my traumatic brain injury, yeah. some of them would say absolutely no question that means you're neurodivergent, but you have a an acquired neurodivergence. Others would say, hmm, not sure that really counts. What we talk about in our training is, you know, there are some neuroidentity groups here that I think are, are pretty well established within that sphere. Autistic people, dyslexic people, dyspraxic people, ADHDs, and, and, and so on. Um, there is a sort of, uh, you know, contested zone around that where some people would say some, uh, you know, mental illnesses are... Uh, neurodivergence and, and, and some wouldn't. Huh. I think 
the way we answer this ultimately, the way we we address this is is back to the fact that no two people have the same brain. And rather than rather than obsessing over sort of who's in, you know, which bracket, which again, I know many people in this world who feel strongly about it, but the fact that they don't feel strongly the same way tells me that you know th- this is something that's continuing to, to to be debated. I think if we in a very practical sense as employers or as managers or as colleagues, we just are cognizant of the fact that people mm-hmm. have different brains. That's a pathway to appreciating and and, and being empathetic and, and leveraging, you know, some of those differences. Yes, yes, I love that. I, I love that, Sissy. I know you have some comments and questions. Oh, I, I, well, yes, I do. One is my husband also had a traumatic brain injury, and I really hadn't thought of the idea of him being neurodivergent after it because it. I don't see a huge change in what's going on. I do know that the neurosurgeon told us that the portion of his brain where the bleed was is gone, (laughs) you know, and that other parts of his brain had to pick up and it did. So yeah, uh, he is, you know, obviously neurodiverse, but I also think to a degree what he does for a living created um, just a different way of thinking anyway. He's in the music industry and a lot of musicians or artists are a little different than the rest of us are people who um, work in the engineering portion of it think differently than the rest of us for sure for sure I mean they sit down at those machines and start typing and I am completely lost so that was uh, that was definitely a little eye-opener for me to think about yeah that kind of does make him neurodiverse doesn't it so anyway I would love for you to tell our listeners a little more about your book Okay, I learned so much from Ed Thompson with Optimize. Did you? I did. I did. He was really cool to listen to, and, you know, just very thought provoking. What was shocking to me is that the term neurodiversity wasn't even a word really until the 90s, and that companies didn't really start exploring it until the 2010s, which is Pretty cool. And one of the words I, I learned from him and I used it in a training the other day, which I love this word, neuroinclusion. Neuroinclusion. I really like that in terms of thinking that people might have different needs neurologically and that we can be mindful of that. Yes, I thought it was so cool. And, you know, he's done a lot. I mean, he he's come a long way with his company. He has helped or optimize his company has, you know, uh, influenced uh, over 100 companies. And one of the things that I also learned about what he had to say is that, you know, I did that training the other day and I was like very being very existential. And I said, so, you know, what is neurodiversity? Like who is, who's not, you know, and I, I, we'll talk about that later with Amanda Gray, but I love that he was kind of like, don't stress out on that, you know, it's yeah. really just, yeah. it, it depends on, and, you know, he even talked about how he had a traumatic brain injury and that some people would say he was neurodivergent and some people would say he wasn't because the, the accident occurred, you know, later in life. So I don't think there's really any one set in fact when I looked it up I found a lot of different diagnoses that would be considered neurodivergent but um but there are a couple um or one at least in our question that 
would not represent a neurodivergent person. So I guess you ready for the question? I am bringing that on. All right. So the question is, which of the following is probably not accepted by experts as being a neurodiverse condition? A, dyslexia. B, ADHD, ADD. C, narcissism. Or D, apraxia. That's really very good. I mean, we've talked, we had a whole podcast that spent a lot of time talking about apraxia. So um, yes, there is a neurological difference there. It might not look in the same sensory wise that we see uh, kids on the spectrum do have, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would say that there are many ADHD, ADD students who would identify, or not students, but individuals who would identify as neurodivergent and need certain conditions in order to focus and, and be agitated, you know, by certain conditions that other people don't find agitating. You know, I'm one of those people who needs to have the TV on in the background or music playing in the background if I'm studying. That's correct. It's because you would actually need that, and I could not focus on anything if I had yeah. for TV. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Not white noise. I don't like white noise, but, you know, I mean, that's, and I, I'm not saying I'm neurodiverse, <laughs> but I am, or ADHD or ADD, but I do know that about me. I know that when I'm studying, I really like, or working hard on something, I need some music and stuff in the background. I'm wondering if people would sometimes consider someone who has dyslexia as being neurodivergent. And, you know, there is a difference in the way they are learning to read that that part of their difference impacts that sensory to a degree outlet for them to learn to read. So, yeah, I'm sure there are definitely people with dyslexia who identify as well and also yeah sorry to interrupt also dysgraphia dyscalculia those are all all considered to be neurodivergent conditions yeah so I guess that leaves us with that one wonderful one uh narcissism is that a neurodiversity is that neurodiverse or not um I know that it's considered a personality disorder and I think that they probably want things a particular way, <laughs> but I don't think it's so much about how their sensory system is taking in information. What's yeah. interesting is there are people who will say, oh, well, you know, kids are just, you know, kids with autism, they're just narcissists. Well, no, 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 no. Um, Bill, you know, the auto part comes from me, you know, the the center of me and narcissists are certainly all about me. Um, But um, no, it's just a, it's just a condition you don't want to have to interact with. Yeah, I was married to one and um, you just, it's really more of a personality disorder or difference at least, at the very least. So good job. Well, everybody, we know that you love listen to Ed, if for nothing else, his wonderful exit, but we also know you learned a lot and we kind of left you on a cliffhanger with regard to him telling us about his book. So stay tuned next week and have a great weekend. Bye. Bye.